morning, City of Hope. It's been just a few years since we last saw each other. I say that in jest because some of you are probably looking at me saying, yeah, I don't remember you at all. <laughs> well, it's, it's been since October 3rd, 2010, since the last time I had an opportunity to uh, be with you and to minister with you. Um, I pray that the Lord would see fit to visit us in um, challenging and enriching ways as we peer into the scriptures. So at this time, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 63, if you have not already done so. That's Psalm 63. And it reads, A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you, as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the rich beauty that we find in your word. It is our prayer, Lord, that you would visit us today and in your word and by your spirit. Pray, Lord, that the struggles and the stressors and the, the challenges that the body faces, Lord God, that, all, that we all face, that you would meet us right there at that point of need and that you would speak to us and communicate to us the very real and rich truth that you are our everything. This I ask in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a message I've entitled, My Everything. My Everything. In our places of utter and absolute deprivation, the Lord meets us with complete satisfaction in Him. I'll say that again. In our places of utter and absolute deprivation, the Lord meets us 
with complete satisfaction in him. Gospel recording artist Brie Babineau encapsulates this thought perfectly in her song, My Everything. And it goes, if I lost everything and didn't have anything and you were the only thing, I'd still have everything. Those opening lyrics and my initial proposition both attempt to give us a sense of what David is communicating in today's meditation. While David waxes poetically with vivid imagery and emotive language, he isn't merely just crafting the next lyrical or, or the next great lyrical poetry. There is in this psalm a passion and desperation that seems to be all-consuming. I think in past times or in sort of cursory manners as I've uh, gone over this psalm and been blessed by the rich and beautiful language, I couldn't help but think things like this would be a wonderful song brought to life. But it goes much deeper than the melodic beauty that attends the song. For as David pens this song, this, this psalm of lament, he, he does so from a particular context that grips him. Some say that the context that, that David is facing are those dark times where he was a fugitive from King Saul. And that very well may be the case. But peering into this psalm, it seems more likely that the time frame in question would be uh, when he was on the run from his son, Absalom. Come to this conclusion based on his reference to the king in verse 11 as he's referring to himself as the king, something that he very likely wouldn't do as he was a fugitive from Saul. And so if, in fact, David is alluding to himself as being the king, which he appears to be, and he's linking this time up with a time when he was on the run from his son Absalom, you could imagine the sense of trauma and turmoil that he's going through. He had already done a horrendous sin and brought all sorts of confusion to his family. And so now, as he's in this latest dilemma, his soul feels nothing more than the press and the tension and the weightiness of the problem that he's now facing. This psalm actually uh, separates very nicely in three sections. We look at verse verses 1 through 4, and that could be grouped under the heading, I'm sorry, let me, let me say it this way. It could be separated into three sections, just sort of following the mentions of my soul. Verse 1, we see mention of his soul thirsting for the Lord. In verse 5, we see another mention is, uh, of, of his soul, his nephesh. My soul will be satisfied. So we see the longing of thirsting giving way to the satisfaction that the Lord will provide. And then again in verse 9 where he speaks about, but those who seek to destroy my life, it's the same Hebrew word, nephesh. 
And so we see it separates as David is reflecting on what is weighing upon his soul. He's communicating to us a, an intense passion. An intense passion that permeates the soul. An intense passion that doesn't just merely consume him internally. Yes, he makes mention to his soul, but as you look at verse 1, and he references his, his soul, in the very next phrase, he's making mention of his flesh faints for the Lord. He provides us with two contrasting uh, references that are intending on expressing totality or completeness. He's saying, the all of me, the whole of me, my everything thirsts and faints and pants after the Lord. We see this sense of completeness communicated to us elsewhere in the Psalms or elsewhere in Scripture. Where they refer to the Lord as being the, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Psalm 115, verse 15, and 121, verse 2, and 146, verse 6. Those are again providing us with two contrasting references, heaven and earth. So not to say in a, in a reductionistic fashion that that's the only thing he created. Well, where did everything else come from? It's, it's the scripture's way of again showing that in this sort of totality or in this completeness, the Lord has created all things. We see something again like that in Psalm 1, verse 2, where it speaks of uh, the blessed man and how in the law of the Lord the blessed man meditates day and night. That is to say that his all-consuming place of focus intentionally remains on ruminating on the word of God. And so as the psalmist is saying, my soul and my flesh, he's again saying that is everything smartingly feels and is gripped by and pressed in and is under pressure. And he's looking to navigate this, this season of, of trauma. I hate using that word because it seems like it's overused in our culture. Everybody has trauma in all settings. Something happens on my news feed on social media, it's trauma. Someone disagrees with me, it's trauma. Well, David is not using it in that way, shape, or form. Someone didn't merely hurt his feelings and therefore he has trauma. He feels crushed. And as he feels crushed and as he's attempting to navigate this, this crushed and weighty time, he sets his gaze on the Lord. He sees the Lord as his desperate need, his steadfast hope. And today as we step through this passage in Psalm 63, we'll do so under the following three headings. Verses 1 through 4, passion. Verses 5 through 8, provision. Verses 9 through 11, protection. Let's read the first four verses. Oh, 
God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Stopping right there for a moment. As David brings us into this psalm, he's not doing so, giving us the warm and fuzzy. He's not giving us another beautiful devotional thought. He brings us into thirsting, panting, fainting, and, and clinging. You can imagine that if he's journalizing this, he's, he has a, a, a tear-soaked journal. He finds himself on his knees, and he feels every bit of, of tension bearing down on him and pressing him in. The psalmist is seeking. The psalmist is thirsting. The psalmist is fainting. And it's worth noting that as you come to this passage, and very nicely, I mean, in the ESV they translated this, and I, I, I tend to like track with what the ESV is, is saying the vast majority of the time. But it's worth noting that as you look at verse 1, the word as is not there. The words where there is is not there. And so as David is looking to navigate the language that he's going through to express his state of deprivation, he doesn't want us to look at his language as, he's, as if he's coming up with yet another creative metaphor. David is saying, I am in the wilderness. Not like as the wilderness, but I am in the wilderness. And this wilderness could be, it could be physical, it could be spiritual, but it is the wilderness for David. And tracking along with what I, just, what I just pointed out, as David is expressing his, his state of deprivation, and he's saying, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land, and with a breathless grasp, gasp, uh, uh, seeking to, to force out the next few words, in a dry and weary land, almost a gasp there, as if to say, no water. He's struggling and feeling himself drying up. He's in a physical, a spiritual wilderness, but he wants us to know that he is nonetheless in the wilderness. The psalmist almost has the appearance of fighting for his life as his strength is ebbing away. Now we've been through a pandemic which seems like forever. And it, it, it seems like during this pandemic, we couldn't just have COVID, right? We've got to have COVID. We've got to have social unrest. We have to have the ugliness of death coming to our own homes and a whole myriad of other struggles. And so we have felt our own lives or in our own situations in a, in a wilderness. 
gasping in an uncomfortable space. And yet as David is communicating this uncomfortable space and posture that he's in, we find his state of desperation meeting a singular and sole remedy. But before we even get to the remedy, we see that he's longing and he's lamenting with a sense of urgency. He says, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly. The words there could be rendered early. Early will I seek you. It's his way of prioritizing God, saying that early, first thing in the morning as my most prioritized purpose and plan, I am setting my focus on God. Earnestly I seek you. Couldn't help but feel convicted by this portion right here. Earnestly I seek you. Early I seek you. I prioritize you, God. Yeah, you wake up early in the morning and you've got to tend to the dogs. Let the dogs out. Yeah, you have to log in for work and get ready for work. Yeah, you, you have to check your email. Do you really? Your text message, yeah, you really? The scores, yeah, really? And then somewhere down the line, perhaps lunchtime, you find yourself bringing God into that list of confusion. But the psalmist doesn't say that. He says, earnestly, early, will I seek you. And he gives us a glimpse into why he seeks the Lord so early, so earnestly. And it seems overly simplistic for me to say this, so, so pardon me. The, the opening words tell us why he prioritizes God the way that he does. He says, oh God, you are my God. That's why I prioritize you. Oh God, oh Elohim, you are my El. So as I say, Elohim, you are my mighty one. You are my strong one. You are my hero, my deliverer. I'm in a state of desperation, deprivation. I am drying up. My strength is ebbing, and I need you. You're my hero. You're the one who's mighty to save. Not only does David give us this sense of God's greatness, focusing in on him being mighty to save, but the language that he uses by saying in that sort of simplistic fashion, oh God, you are my God, almost sounds like covenantal language. It seems to echo language that the Lord has used concerning his people over and over again. Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. 
Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. David is reflecting on God's ability, his power, but also his faithfulness using that language that is reminiscent of covenant language he not only thinks about God being mighty to save but he thinks about the fact that God has covenanted himself with his people he has obligated himself to his people he has looked to 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 be their God in 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 a, in a faithful as a as the song goes a faithful and almost a reckless kind of way This covenant language that he uses, this re these references, particularly in uh, the Exodus passage, the reference makes mention of God delivering his people as well as making them his covenant people. That brought to mind the, the passage in Romans chapter 8 where uh, Paul says that the Lord did not, I'm sorry, Paul arguing from the, the, the greater to the lesser says, if God didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? We pray, or maybe I, I don't want to be insulting, I pray, and then there are times I doubt, and then I'm brought to passages like this, and I'm reminded he gave me the gift of his son. These little things aren't a problem to him. If he's so generous and loving that he would give me his son. He would give you his son. And he will care for all of your needs. David's amazing, the, the amazing thing about David's thought, his confession here in verse 1, like, man, you've been going for a while, you still on verse 1? <laughs> this thought in verse 1 is that it's not just the way he processed things in the midst of turmoil. David is essentially saying when we look at verse 2 that what I am describing, the way that I, I sort of process things in the midst of turmoil, referring to how I am uh, fainting and panting and thirsting after God, that's how I do worship. <laughs> David is saying that this is, this is his, his practice, his pattern, his practical liturgical rhythms as he worships God under normal circumstances. This is how he pursues God. You see that? In the ESV, it simply says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. The word there, so, could be rendered in the same manner. In the same way that I'm crying out concerning my desperation for you, in happier times, under normal circumstances, you are so prioritized in my life, being my God and all. I have that same sort of practical, liturgical 
rhythm. It's like the hymn writer that said, I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. That's what David is saying. Whether it's joy, whether it's pain, I need you. Pastor, no pastor, I need you, God. Job or no job, house or no house, I need you. And David, as he's using this language, he, he says in this manner, along these lines, according to this liturgical pattern, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. These words would suggest a shifting of one's focus, a fixation on a particular thing. It's the same way that we look at Hebrews chapter 12, when Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about the, the being surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, and then the, the preacher wants us to shift our focus away from the crowd of witnesses, and then says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. David is saying something along those lines. I am shifting my focus in the midst of worship and fixating on God. Another thing that's worth noting is that the language here for him looking is the same sort of language that's you, looking upon you is the same sort of language that's used over and over again to describe what the prophets were doing to receive their burden, their oracle from the Lord. It's as if David is saying, I had some sort of in the midst of corporate worship. I had some sort of existential moment or experience. Pause, stop, what in the world are you saying? Whether it was the singing of the song, I don't know, I can't get myself together, but when you sing, how great is our God, it moved me. I don't know, maybe it was the testimony. The Lord spoke to me in the midst of the testimony. Whatever it was, and the passage doesn't make it clear, whatever it was, David says that as a result of that, it gave him a sense of the, the power and the glory of God. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And that exposure to his power and glory set his gaze upon the steadfast love of God, the said of God, the loving kindness, the loyal love of God, the unfailing love of God, the devotion of God, the kindness, the mercy, the goodness, the faithfulness. He is saying that this is reminding him of the fact that he is one of God's covenant people. It's that overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That love that chases you down like a fugitive, finding you in your deepest, darkest valleys. That, that type of love that David is speaking of here in this passage. He says this love is of such value that it is better than life itself. That's where I come up with the idea that David is saying, 
You are my everything. Your love is better than life itself. The psalmist could have said, in the wilderness there's no water. Lord, give me water. He could have said, Lord, in the wilderness I am fainting. Be great to get some Gatorade to get my electrolytes back up. Maybe a sandwich or something. But he sets his focus and his gaze on God. On God, whose steadfast love is better than life. And because his steadfast love is better than life, David says that the whole shape and contour and focus and pattern of his life is to bless the name of the Lord as long as he lives, to lift up his hands in surrender to the Lord. Verses 5 through 8, I promise you I'll move faster. The psalmist takes us from a place of longing to a place of satisfaction. He was longing for the object of his passion, that is the Lord. And now he shifts us toward him receiving fulfillment to that longing. He says that his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. The language here is actually reflective of the type of food that was only earmarked for the Lord. In Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16, and Leviticus chapter 7, verse 23, we see that the, the animal fat in the sacrifice was reserved for the Lord. And here the psalmist is saying that in all of his longing, in all of his deprivation, as he shifts his focus toward the Lord, his everything, the Lord gave him essentially exceeding abundantly above all he could ask or think. The Lord lavished him with generosity. The psalmist says it this way elsewhere. Psalm 107 verse 9, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. David has cried out for the Lord, and the Lord has heard him. David stands as a bit of an object lesson or a testimony for us, reminding us that in the midst of our worship, as our brother was talking about last week, this, this intimacy that we ought to be pushing into or leaning into. But as David shows us this picture of intimacy in joy or in pain, he shows us that despite what our flesh may attempt to tell us, that all of that focus that you're putting on God is wasted time, the scriptures here are telling us, no, it is not. For the Lord hears and he answers your prayers and he is concerned about you. David speaks about how he will remember the Lord or he remembers the Lord in his, on his bed he meditates on him in the night watches. 
This could be a reference to times when he's most vulnerable in his weakest moments, the night watches. Another thing, following the pattern of two contrasting references, as he spoke about seeking the Lord earnestly or early, and then we see him remembering the Lord upon his bed and on his night watches, he gives us this, continuous, this picture of <clears throat> continuous meditation or reflection upon the Lord. His mind seems to be full of God. We may struggle because our minds are full of distractions. But the psalmist is saying, set aside the tyranny of the busy and set your heart on God. As you consider social issues, let the social issues pass through the lens of God. As you consider the pandemic and all the politicizing that we've been doing concerning the pandemic, the scriptures are saying, set your attention on God. David says, I've meditated on you like this because you've been my help. How has he helped you, David? He says, in the shadow of your wings, I'll sing for joy. As he uses that language, shadow of your wings, it is a picture of protection. The Lord has overshadowed him and protected him in ways that he didn't even know. But if we continue to follow the, the worship motif, if David is still focused in on the sanctuary and the, the covenant love of God and and, and things of that nature as he makes reference to the shadow of his wings, he could have in mind the Ark of the Covenant and how the cherubim stand with their wings extended. And that area over where their, their wings are extended is referred to as the mercy seat. And so it could be as David is reflecting on this time that the Lord has been his help, he's been remi reminded of times he had to come over and over again to the mercy seat of God. For us, that may not track or, or, or hit us the same way. For us, we may think about um, a hymn like um, on a hill far away stood the old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross to my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. David found himself clinging, clinging to the Lord. But the more impressive thing is, as he found himself clinging to the Lord, the Lord was upholding him with his right hand. It's one thing for you to walk down the street with one of your children, small children, 
and we're go we're, you're walking down the street in the midst of the storm, and a big wind gust picks up one of your children and lifts them off their feet. And it's one thing for your child to be gripping onto your hand with all of his or her might. It's a completely other thing for you to hold onto your child's hand. The funny thing is, I say that by testimony. Not that one of my, not that that happened to one of my kids, but I vividly remember coming from the store with my mom, and it just started to storm. And this storm lifted me up off my feet, and I'm attempting to grasp for my mother's hand and losing it. And I could see myself, and I, I could still um, envision it, grabbing, attempting to grab onto a building as the wind is blow, about to blow me down the street, and my mother grabs me. holds on to me and brings me into her arms. Well, David is illustrating that for us here. David is saying that his soul clings to the Lord, but more importantly than that, the right hand of God, the powerful, strong right hand of the Lord is everything, upholds him. And so with that reflection, David can now get to verses 9 through 11. He can now start to talk about the turmoil that's surrounding him. He can now start to talk about those who are awaiting to destroy his life. Those who have been lying on him. He can get into all of the nitty-gritty of what's happening behind him now and make, a, a not at this point, not a startling uh, a contrast, but a very real and legitimate contrast. He can move on from lament and celebration to use language of finality concerning what will be the end of those who oppose him. He says those who seek to destroy his life will go down to the depths of the earth, finality. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. Brutality. And they shall be the portion for jackals. Utter and complete humiliation. But in contrast to that, David describes his state as a state of rejoicing. And all those who swear by the Lord, all those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord, will leap for joy. They'll exalt. And so David is giving us this picture, reminding us of, or nailing down the proposition that I started us with, in our places of utter and absolute deprivation, the Lord meets us with complete satisfaction in him. Or maybe it fits better on the breeze song, if I lost everything and didn't have anything, and you were my own, you were the only thing, I'd still have everything. Gracious and most wise Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that your word comes to us and confronts us in the midst of our times of need.
pray, Lord, that strength and encouragement is being gleaned from your word. I pray, Lord, that warmth and instruction has been gleaned from your word. I pray, Father, that you've met your people at their point of need. Take this word and seal it to our hearts. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.